With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. This is Who Killed Teresa and I'm your host, John Allure. And it's a snow day here in uh, North Carolina. We don't get too many of those, so everything is shut down. So I thought, um, rather than binge-watching something, uh, I thought I'd um, plug out a podcast here on the case of uh, Marie-Ève Larivière. But before I do that, I was thinking about how how to frame this up, how to, to... to tee this up, this case, and I think I'll do it this way. I was um, I was thinking uh, recently I, just uh, about my website. Uh, I, uh, before the podcast, I had a website. I, my recollection is I started the website, I believe December two thousand and two, um, and you know, over the years, it's. It's gained attention, not so much anymore, but partly because I'm not actively writing uh, anymore, I'm podcasting more. So there's not there's not a lot of written content there. Although I will say, uh, recently, if you if you want to check it out, because we've been discussing this article uh, from December 1999 from La Presse on these eight murders, um, I went ahead and translated that article and put it up on the site so you can see it in I did a rough translation into English so you can kind of see the the the, the meat of it but um, so that's gained a little bit of attention lately but uh, roughly you know normally I get I, I don't know two 200 good hits is a is a good day for the um, dot um, and and even that I mean I so, I sort of know who's who's reading it from what they're looking at you know, it's it's hardliners. It's you know people who work in provincial or uh, federal justice in in Ottawa or Quebec City or Montreal. Often, um, some police people like that. Kind of really diehard people who who look at it. It's not you know it's by no means web sleuths uh, <laughs> in, in terms of its popularity. Um, but over the years, there have, I noticed there's been some content that really kind of magnifies and, and uh, gains interest. Um, particularly, um, you know, I think I, I, I wrote a, a piece on uh, the serial killer from Trenton, Ontario, Colonel Russell Williams. And for some reason, people just flocked to that like, like, like you know, flies to a light bulb um, uh, and and occasionally I've covered cases uh, in real time as they're folding out. I mean, this was the case with the murders of uh, Hannah Graham and Morgan Harrington um, th- that occurred in the Charlottesville area of Virginia some years ago. And, uh, and, and in those cases, at that time, I was I was kind of um, spitting out geographic maps um, based on every as I'd learn information. And in in those days, I was. I was pretty good at these maps. Um, nowadays, you'd look at them and you'd laugh, but they—I mean, they—they they, they, you know—they serve my purpose. I mean, all I really needed in my mind was the map, and then a visual um, of what happened at different locations, and then a short description of of what the visual represented, and then that could kind of give me a framework from to work uh, with. But one of those maps was um, for a um, a Montreal case, uh, the case of uh, Natasha Cornoyer. Now this this unfolded, uh, I believe, in two thousand two thousand nine, 
Conway was a 37-year-old uh, corrections worker. She worked in in uh, in Laval uh, in the corrections uh, industry. She disappeared, um, and she was found in an industrial uh, area in uh, her body uh, um, raped and strangled in an industrial area uh, way on the east end of uh, Montreal. And as it unfolded, they, the next thing you knew, they had this suspect named Claude LaRouche, who was in his, in his 50s. And we were getting pieces of information as we went along. You know, he, he used to live here in the Hochelaga Maisonneuve, where he at one time tried to assault like a, a, a nine-year-old girl. Um, the, the corrections facility was where she worked. It wasn't a corrections facility. It was more like an administrative arm of, of Quebec corrections. Where she worked, you know, was located in this part of Laval. He took her to a motel, um, a couple of, you know, highway exits over, where he consumed mass quantity of cocaine, lost control. Uh, I shouldn't say lost control. Um, who knows? Uh, that's his claim. But um, consumed all this cocaine and proceeded to assault and murder her takes the um, body, dumps it in the East End. Her belongings are found scattered along the road. So I was creating these maps and people were, you know, didn't like, um, you know, no one else was doing it. So it was, it was garnering um, a lot, a lot of attention. Uh, I think that's the, like one of the last times that my website has really, you know, been kind of a, a hive of activity. Um, uh, LaRouche uh, was later convicted and uh, he was uh, designated a, um, a dangerous offender um, by, by corrections um, and, the, and the, the justice system in Quebec. And we'll go into that just a little later in this broadcast. First, uh, some news. On Monday of this week, I believe it was the Monday, the, the 15th of January, 2018, um, the Provincial Police Force of Quebec, the Certe de Quebec, announced that they're going to beef up their cold case unit from currently five investigators. They're going to add another 25, taking it to 30 which is uh, astonishing, uh, really. And uh, before I offer some comments on it, I think I'm just going to read this article. This is from the Toronto Star this week. Uh, it says, Quebec's provincial police force hikes cold case unit membership to crack unsolved deaths. Squad membership will increase to nearly 30 from five and will have a presence in Montreal and Quebec City. Uh, and this is by uh, the, well, it's it's the Toronto Star, but it's uh, Siddhartha Banerjee who's uh, um, writing on behalf of the Canadian press. But he's written for the the, the Montreal Gazette for years. I've 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 known him for um, almost as long as I've I've been involved in these matters. So it says. Uh, Quebec Provincial Police will significantly hike the number of officers assigned to its cold case squad in the coming months as it aims to tackle a backlog of unsolved slayings dated back more than 50 years. The unit's membership will increase to nearly 30 from 5 and will have a presence in Montreal area and Quebec City, a spokesman for the force said Monday. Lieutenant Martin Aslin explained that regular investigators often have to respond to breaking crimes or urgent cases meaning unsolved K-killings, head to the back burner. That will change with the beefed-up staff committed solely to those unsolved cases. Now they will work full-time on these cases, Aslan said. They will concentrate 100% of these 
on these cases. Uh, that'll permit us to move forward. The unit will have plenty of work as there are currently about 750 unsolved cases in its jurisdiction dating back to the 1960s. For the last 10 years, we brought back and centralized all the unsolved files to the cold case unit near Montreal, Aslan said. And in the past two years, we went through all of them and came up with a blueprint of what we would do, how we could do to have an ending in these investigations. Nearly two-thirds are organized crime cases, but the unit will focus on those involving women, children, and the elderly, Aslan said. All Canadian police forces handle cold cases differently. Some have a handful of police officers dedicated to the case, while others leave it up to homicide detectives alone. Quebec Provincial Police, which will have among the largest units, say they found benefits in having a bigger group working on a case, such as the high-profile disappearance of Cédrica Provencher, a young Quebec girl who vanished from near her home in 2007. In December 2015, her remains were discovered in a wooded area, and to date, there have been no arrests in her disappearance and slaying. When the squad was founded in 2004, it wanted to take advantage of relatively new investigative techniques such as DNA profiling. Aslan said investigators found that witnesses or tipsters are more willing to talk as time passes. She also said social media could be a new tool for the revamped unit. Someone who knew something, who didn't talk, maybe sometime sitting behind a computer is more likely to get them share to share information, she said. The unit currently solves a few crimes a year on average, but is hoping to dramatically increase the ratio. More investigators will hopefully help us arrest someone and give some answers to families, Aslan said. Now, um, so about some of these things... Yes, although although the, the the headquarters are going to be lodged in um, Montreal and Quebec City, someone errone erroneously pointed out that that meant that they were going to solve Montreal and Quebec City crimes. That does not mean that. Uh, recall that Sartre Quebec's jurisdiction is is exclusively um, um, for those regions that do not have a municipal police force. So in the case of a Montreal, a Quebec City, a Longueuil, a Laval, you, those agencies will have to still um, resolve their cold cases, many of which we've talked about here. To the great frustration, I believe, no doubt, to some families, you know, if in, in the time that we've been talking about this. So this is certainly very good news, potentially for Teresa Lor for Jocelyn Houle, for Louise Cameron, um, for Chantelle Tremblay. It is not very good news for uh, Stéphane Luce, for um, uh, the, the Pryor family, the Dorian family, the Blay family. All of those are covered by the other agencies we talked about, Longuet, Laval, and, and Montreal. Um, it is true that... Um, Early in 2004, they centralized the cases. This was certainly the 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 case with um, Teresa's case file. When I originally did my work, uh, the case file was in Sherbrooke, uh, Quebec, um, and then it was quickly moved to the the Montreal headquarters on uh, Parthenay Street in the east end of Montreal. Now, whether that was by design or not, I don't know. I can certainly recall that my writing uh, the, the central agency in Montreal requesting that they that they take the case file out of the hands of the the, the bumpkins in in Sherbrooke and centralize it in 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 Montreal so whether whether they they heard my request or whether they were planning on doing that anyway uh, who uh, who knows um, and then recall, so Sarté de Québec has 750 unsolved cases. Well, all the other agencies have a like amount. I think we discussed just the, the, the island of Montreal alone having about 600. And I think that the total for all of Quebec over 50 years is somewhere between 1,600 and, uh, yeah, 1600 and 1,700 cold Cases. I, I would argue the idea that the majority of them are mafia-related. That's 
um, but I guess they would know um, better than anyone. Um, yes, uh, different agencies certainly handle cold cases differently. That's certainly the case. Um, I'm trying to fathom what they think they learned from the absolute debacle that was the disappearance of Cédric Provencher in 2007, and then the, the, the discovery of her remains in 2015, um, and that they had large units that, as they say, uh, the benefits of having a bigger group working on a case, well, what was the benefit? It's still an unsolved murder, and it's well documented that they 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 botched this investigation every step of the way from the disappearance to the the, the recovery. Um, and they, I know to the state they have a suspect in mind, but there's there's no evidence to prove it. Which again, the, um, as we'll see in discussing these other cases, seems to always be the the, the case. They, we we know this individual is responsible potentially for for other crimes. We just don't have the proof, I and mean, it always begs the question: Well, do you not have the proof, or did you lose the proof? Did you destroy the proof in processing the evidence? We'll never know. But the question always looms over the Quebec police agencies' heads for the last fifty years um, in in their inability. Uh, to to resolve uh, cold cases and and again having one of the the lowest uh, clearance rates for homicide um, certainly in the the lowest in the country and one of the lowest in in the world potentially I um this the, this uh, this insinuation that witnesses and tipsters are more willing to talk as time passes. And the use of social media is also very, very baffling to me. Um, if you, I mean, their party line uh, for years was uh, no one's going to come forward, you know, so we're not going to try and make them come forward, you know, because no one will say anything. It was, it was just a, a complete apathy to go back and, you know, re-interview witnesses because, you know, from my opinion, uh, you should do that. Uh, you, you know, it, it, some of these, with some of these cases from certain from the seventies and early eighties, we're talking about witnesses who are octogenarians now, right? And I, I think they're at the point in their life in this their seventies and eighties that if they were, and this this goes for the, the the police investigators too. They're so old that they don't remember the bullshit lies and stories they made up to cover their tracks, that all that's going to be left in their memories is, is the truth. They're not going to have the, the mental capacity to, to, to maintain a lie uh, any longer. So by all means, go back and re-interview uh, every, everyone. But this was never your... Um, Part of the Sarté de Québec's MO in the past, their their process was um, to to sit and wait, wait for somebody to contact them, not to reach out at all. So I, I uh, I'd love to hear what their blueprint is for for action that they've developed over the last uh, two years. In my experience, what they would do is. You know, if you found someone who you thought was interested, well, fine. You know, we'll give them a polygraph. If they pass it, you know, that's it. They're innocent, you know. And again, as we've said, and you know, never realizing why they put so much faith in a polygraph. And I mean, I don't, I don't know any other agencies that relies so much on a on a, a lie detective test that gives in cases of homicide with sociopaths, psychopaths, false positives. I mean, why would you do this? And then the, you know, finally the, you know, the real howler here is that they, <laughs> they want, they, they, they founded the squad in 2004 to take advantage of, 
uh, investigative techniques such as DNA profiling. Well, you fucking threw away all the DNA. What are you? What are you talking about? What on earth are you talking about? Um, uh, anyway, uh, that is my uh, my rant on uh, <clears throat> this news. Uh, I think in a in a post I said I'd take the high road. I will take the high road. I have a call in to the the head of the cold case squad, uh, Marc Lapin. I, I'd like to get his comments and his version of things. Certainly, I welcome 25 more officers. In fact, hey, can can you hire me? I'll I'll do it, <laughs> you know. Send me to Nicolette for, for uh, you know, three months of police training so I, you know, know the <laughs> culture of the SQ. I think I know the culture but you know you give me your version and and then you can hire me and I'll work alongside you uh, how does that uh, sound how is that for a plan Again, working off the uh, 1999 La Presse article, um, eight murders uh, unsolved in the region. Uh, we'll we'll go to the the fifth uh, victim cited, uh, which is uh, Marie-Ève uh, uh, La Rivière, um, and uh, the majority of this information was pulled together from. Um, uh, article, articles in uh, in the archives of the Bibliothèque Nationale de Québec, um, um, from mostly from uh, La Presse, also uh, Le Devoir. Uh, I, I will note uh, something very good uh, about the archives at uh, Bank, as it's called, B A N Q. Uh, is where you can find it online. Uh, if uh, they have changed. Um, their firewalls or something. So so now, like for instance, in the case we discussed last time, the Valerie Delpe, um, for a long time, if you searched Delpe, you'd find nothing. But now if I go to Google and I, I punch in uh, Valerie Delpe Maître, Im- immediately one of the things that comes up is a PDF of... Uh, of a, a, a Bibliothèque Nationale du Québec a document. So, I mean, it used to be that, there, as I say, there'd be a firewall there. You, Google would not access the, the information. Now it is, which is, is very good news for anyone trying to find information on, on lost uh, crimes. So to, to begin with, I'll just briefly summarize what that La Presse article from 1999 stated. Uh, it says, uh, Marie-Ève La, La Rivière, 11 years old from Laval, was visiting friends uh, with her parents, and she disappeared on, um, on March 7th, 1992. So, 92. So this is now um, about two and a half years from the case of Valérie Delpey, who, as we said, was... F- Remains were found in, in, in three boxes in the east end of Montreal. So it continues. Her, her, her corpse was found the next morning, uh, abandoned in an industrial area along uh, Boulevard Saint-Martin, about five kilometers um, from where she disappeared. The child uh, had been sexually um, assaulted and killed by strangulation. So that's, that's all we know. <clears throat> So this is um, this is a Laval case, and uh, before we get started, I, I think maybe a refresher, uh, a reminder um, of geography, because even when I'm even when I'm discussing it, I get a little confused. So, if if you, um, if, if you think of the island of Montreal, it it is essentially an island in the middle of the Saint Lawrence River. St. Lawrence takes you all the way through the five Great Lakes and 
It comes out at the other end, basically in the Atlantic Ocean. But in reality, Montreal is is not um, not just an island. It's actually two islands. Um, to the to the south is Montreal proper, and then to the north is Laval. So you actually have three bodies of water um, separating. So I'm I'm going to go north to south here to try and orient you to things. So uh, to the north proper, as I've said, you you have these towns like Terban, Rosemere, Blainville we discussed uh, last time. So the cases of uh, of uh, Dorian, um, uh, Joanne Dorian, and the, the, uh, the case of uh, Chantal Tremblay, uh, Chantal Rachon, and then there's a body of water, and that is uh, um, like the Lake of Two Mountains, it's called. And then you get Laval, and, and Laval is where we're going to talk today about uh, Mariev. Um, and then there's a second body of water, which is uh, the Riviere de Prairie, is what it's called. You cross that river, and they're all really kind of like tributaries of the St. Lawrence, right? They just have different names as they split around the island. You get the island of Montreal proper, and then finally you get the St. Lawrence River proper. And then as you cross that, the, the Jacques Cartier Bridge, the Champlain Bridge, you were back on terra firma, firma like Quebec proper. And, and those are the areas of uh, Longueuil, of uh, um, <clears throat> Chateauguay. We talked about the Chateauguay Killer. That's the south shore of that area. Um, Longay, of course, is where Sophie Lam, uh, Landry was last seen at the bus terminal. It's where, um, where the Sharon Pryor's body was found. So that's when we're, we're talking about the, the geography, geography of it, that's kind of what it is. Montreal is an island, but in actual fact, it's kind of like two islands. To the north is Laval, and then to the south is the main island of, um, of Montreal proper. So, it, it, here's, here's what happens to the 11-year-old uh, Mariev. She's, she's at friend's house um, uh, in an area of Laval, which was formerly St. Vincent de Paul, but the area is known as St. Vincent de Paul. Um, and, she's, and it's right um, adjacent to, as I say, Riviere de Prairie. She's having uh, dinner with her parents and their friends. Her sister's there. I think her sister Virginia was two years older, like 13 at the time. Uh, and they're having, a, like, a, on a Saturday night, a spaghetti dinner. And everyone decides, uh, you know, comes to the conclusion that there's not enough bread. Um, so whether Mariev uh, volunteered or, or someone suggested, she is sent out to a local um, bakery uh, called uh, Boulangerie uh, Rando to buy two extra baguettes. And, and when she leaves, um, she immediately gets lost. Where she's supposed to go south down to uh, Boulevard de Lévesque, which is the road that runs right along Riviere de Prairie in Laval, she goes north by mistake. And um, she's kind of, and this is around seven, seven o'clock at night, and she's wandering for apparently about 45 uh, minutes. And she, she winds up in this uh, dépanneur, uh, dépanneur uh, proprio, um, which is at uh, uh, De, uh, De Noyer and Fabrique. Um, and, and she goes into this dépanneur and she meets the, the, the guy working at the counter, a fellow named uh, Dominique uh, Jolicoeur. And um, Jolicoeur um, uh, tells her that you've gone the wrong way and if you, if, if you want to... Um, Boulangerie Rando, let me, let me tell you how to get there, the, the fastest way to get there. So he gives her directions. Um, 
and uh, by now it's it's almost eight o'clock. Uh, it, it is um, it's um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's March, so it's still it's still winter in in uh, in Montreal. There's snow on the ground, although at that time of year, uh, you know, it's like that kind of brown snow. Uh, it also apparently is is raining that evening, which can happen sometimes. Um, and it's suggested that maybe uh, she uh, she she was gone so long because maybe she was seeking shelter along the way because it was raining so much. By um, by this time, her parents um, begin to worry, and they begin to search the surrounding um, area for her. Um, and it's believed that uh, Mariev was abducted along uh, Rue des Noyers um, sometime around 8 o'clock um, while she was trying to make her way back to the baker's to buy the, to buy the, uh, the baguette. Now, the first thing I found myself asking was, uh, would I let my 11-year-old child uh, go on an errand like that in uh, a neighborhood that she was unfamiliar with in the in the middle of the night? And my my first response was was no, I, I would not do that. But in in um, in considering it, I realized that I had actually done something very similar just months ago with with my youngest daughter. Um, who at the time was 13, and as 13-year-olds are wont to do, she, she wanted to go to the mall, but I was at work. Um, and so she suggested she take the bus. Now, now my daughter's very, um, uh, uh, she's, she's very well equipped to take the bus. She takes it everywhere. This was a slightly different journey. It would involve a transfer, but we, we talked through it, and uh, what we agreed on is she'd take the bus to the mall, but by 7 o'clock she'd be, she'd be back in Chapel Hill, and I would pick her up at the, bus, um, at the bus stop so she wouldn't have to take an additional bus. Um, so I, I get to the rendezvous at 7. She's not there. I'm beginning to panic. I get a phone call. She's, what happened? Well, she she got on the bus back to Chapel Hill uh, uh, at the mall, but she got on the wrong bus, and she went exactly in the opposite direction all the way to downtown Durham. And uh, now, eventually, she found her way back. I picked her up; everything was fine. But when I like when I re- recounted this story to my ex-wife, she was horrified that I had. I had done this, and um, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, I suppose, you know, well, I, I, I took the bus everywhere in Montreal. That's how I got from where we live to the, the 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 mall in Pointe Claire, which was Fairview, and that was the only place you could go for kicks, really, other than, the, you know, the the, the local dépanneur for a popsicle or something like that. Um, uh, and and beyond that, it's it's not like I'm some kind of um, you know risk taker uh, at all. Um, far from it. Uh, and in fact, early when my kids were really young, I remember this. Or this was around the time of the like the Washington sniper affair, uh, Boyd Melville, and, and all this when that was going on. And I remember going in. I, I was the um, I was on the PTA at my my eldest daughter's school when she was in first grade. If you can imagine me on a PTA, <laughs> and, and I remember when this was unfolding, just being um, horrified. Like we got to do something, and I, I I called a meeting with the principal of the school and said, "Well, what are you going to do about it?" And he said, "Mr. Lore, these events are unfolding like four hundred miles away." <laughs> So, so I haven't, you know, I haven't always been that permissive with my kids. But I do think, you know, despite my personal um, history, that they should be allowed to to um, adventure and 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 discover within within limits. I mean, uh, you know, um, 
my eldest daughter just decided to on a, on a weekend. Uh, she's in California. Head up to Seattle for the weekend. Now I've never been to Seattle. Uh, you know, my 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 middle daughter um, this summer wants to to go on a road trip uh, through California. Very much along like the route of the, the the Golden State Killer, the original Golden State Killer. Now, now she doesn't know about that, but I do. And is it always somewhat in the the, the back of my mind? Yeah, yes. Um, uh, am I? You know, do I do I get concerned every time? You know that they black out on you know and don't text you for a period. Of course, of course I do. You know. Keep in mind that, you know, I'm also the father who, you know, in the Christmas stockings are um, knives, rape whistles, mace. You know, that's <laughs> that's what's in my kids' stockings. I, I don't I don't know what's in yours. But um, so anyway, would it, as a parent, would, would I have let 11 year old uh, Mariev uh, venture out as she did? Um, uh, my first instinct, no, but, um, my experience seems to, seems to argue that yes, yes, I would, I would have. The following morning, March, Sunday, March 8th, 1992, a, uh, railway worker for the CP, for a Canadian Pacific Railway, he's, uh, he's going to work. Um, around uh, seven in the morning and uh, in this industrial area about five kilometers away from the neighborhood she was last seen uh, he sees lying in the snow uh, the body of uh, Mariève La Rivière and um, she's uh, there are no apparent and obvious marks of violence on on her her body is uh, is what the investigating uh, officer for the Laval police says uh, Marcel uh, Bouillard and and Mariev is fully clothed in um, like her like a snowsuit there's a pretty famous photo of her like a snow jacket and and snow um, pants. A a local resident back in the uh, Saint Vincent de Paul uh, neighborhood remarks that he saw a girl about eleven years of age get into a car around eleven forty five at night, which which is a little perplexing. I mean, if that is true, um, what was what occurred between 8 p.m. and almost midnight within that five-hour window. It seems inaccurate. Um, and, um, and, and later when, when interviewed, the depreneur uh, owner, who, who obviously is mortified at, at the outcome, remarks that a, a young girl had been sexually assaulted in the neighborhood within a month of this abduction and... His response is that uh, he's going forward. He's going to buy himself a pit bull, is what he says. Now, the um, as the um, the week unfolds, obviously there's there's an autopsy done on uh, on the body, and uh, midweek uh, the La Presse breaks um, that. Uh, that Mariev was sexually assaulted and strangled to death, and this this becomes actually some. There's a bit of contention. The 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 Laval police are reluctant to confirm or admit that she had been sexually assaulted, possibly because the funeral was occurring, you know, by midweek. But what? So La Presse goes to the the coroner and the the medical legal uh, professionals who so they go around the police and uh, the, the and they get a hold of the the autopsy which confirms the uh, the presence of sperm um, um, 
That's all it says. We presume in or on her. And that she was fully clothed. And, you know, the reason I bring that up is um, to tie it back to a case we were talking about from 1978. Of course, what immediately comes to mind is the case of Manon Dubey, who disappeared, um, you know, early evening in March 78, while walking home from a corner where there was a depender with her sister, her, her younger sister. She disappears. The body is found six weeks later. She's fully clothed in her, in her winter garments with the exception of one glove or mitten. And the, the, the local police, the Sarté de Quebec, conclude that this is evidence that she was not sexually assaulted because her clothing wasn't removed, despite the fact that, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, we dug up the coroner's original um, report, which stated that he, under his opinion, Dubay was the victim of a sex crime. And I get more people arguing with me that that there's no way that Dubay was a, a sexual homicide that it be, for these absurd reasons like like you wouldn't redress a child as very obviously was the case with Mariev um, if it, if that was the case with Mariev why wouldn't it also potentially be the case with Manon Dubay Mariev talked often about her death um, uh, eerily. She um, talked a lot about it, that she felt she was going to die, and that um, that when she did, she hoped that she would not suffer. Um, did police conduct more than uh, 400 interviews with locals? Um, uh, and uh, well, you know how how the story ends. Uh, March of last year, uh, two thousand seventeen, twenty uh, fifth anniversary of Mariev's uh, murder. There's an article that uh, you know it's the usual article about we have another unsolved case on our hands, um, and by this point. Um, Mariev's sister uh, Virginie um, has started a Facebook cause um, condemning the, the amount of television violence and you know the rest of it. We get the typical police spokesman coming out and saying uh, there's more work to do and uh, you know no 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 case is closed. Bringing this around to to where we we started. Um, the history of sexual violence and, and murder on, on the island of Laval is, is, goes back to the, you know, the cases we were talking about, Chantal Tremblay, uh, Joanne Dorian. In fact, at, the, at, at that time of the, the, the disappearance and murders of those young women, uh, the local press were, were talking about um, uh, le maniac uh, du Laval. So these these things are are nothing nothing new and uh <clears throat> i i will say that later the 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 police determined that uh, uh la rivier had been sexually assaulted um behind a commercial burn uh, a commercial building uh at um Chagnier in Belleville near to where that uh, Depener was. Um, so now to tie all this back, uh, what you should know is uh, the the area where she disappeared um, is not far from the Saint Vincent de Paul Penitentiary, and it, within that area were several. You know agencies associating associated with prisoner release, including 
transition houses for offenders and and inmates. Um, that would later be be revealed. And part of what I'm now going to say was not developed by me. It was developed by a, a, a colleague. So it's not my work, but I'm very grateful to him. So I want to I want to tie it back to Claude Larouche, and um, uh, I'm going to I'm going to read to you what happened to Claude Larouche, and and Claude is now going to stand in for m- many offenders. Um, he could be responsible for this, but there's what I've learned over the, the years is. You know, you you know, you find one. You find like a Guy Cruteau, and you go because of your inexperience. Well, it's got to be him. He looks like somebody who was at Champlain College. Who else would commit these kind of things? Well, the question, you know, and then it, over time it becomes who else? Well, dozens and dozens of of people. So, to start with, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from an an article by the Gazette writer Paul Cherry. Um, who is a great writer. Um, and Paul actually st- started his career with the Sherbrooke Record and then now obviously writes for um, the Gazette. Um, uh, Cornouaille murderer declared dangerous offender. Claude LaRouche, the repeat sex offender who abducted and murdered Natasha Cornouaille and then tried to kill another woman two weeks later, will probably never be free a free man again. We'll see. Claude LaRouche, uh, LaRouche 53, uh, registered no reaction as Superior Court Justice uh, Joanne saint Gallet went through the formality of declaring him a dangerous offender at the Montreal Courthouse on Thursday. Uh, LaRouche's lawyer did not contest the Crown's request that his life sentence become an indefinite sentence, which will present a huge hurdle if he applies for parole. And, and this is the interesting thing here yet. I mean, Dangerous offender, you know, this is what how you know, Paul Bernardo is 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 cataloged. Still, does not mean forever. There's there is still it. This is just a hurdle. There is still the potential parole. Um, the request for the designation was made after Larouche pleaded guilty to the attempted murder of Dominique Martel, an escort who contacted uh, through a cl- he contacted through a classified advertisement in a newspaper two weeks after he abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered Cornoyer, a Correctional Services Canada employee, on October 1, 2009. Martel attended the sentence hearing on Thursday and clapped her hands once when saint jalais made the designation official. Outside the courtroom, Martel told reporters that life behind bars is not enough of a punishment for LaRouche. And, and this is Martel's account of the event that happened to her. She says, When he walked in, he said he was nervous and he looked around. He put my dog inside my bathroom. She said that she sensed a rage in him when he sniffed a line of cocaine and then tried to strangle her to death. She managed to fight him off by biting his finger. LaRouche responded by punching Martel in the face before she escaped to the balcony of her apartment. Martel said that what gave her strength was adrenaline and an instinct to stay alive. According to the evaluation presented to the court as part of the dangerous offender evaluation process, LaRouche told Martel he was nervous because he had, quote, issues with the size of his penis, unquote. He came over to kill me, and I sensed the rage and the hate when he didn't succeed in what he wanted to do, Martel said. She recognized LaRouche's mugshot in a newspaper after he was arrested for Cornwallier's murder in November 2009 and filed a complaint. So in this, I mean, I don't know the details of the case, but it uh, it doesn't say that, you know, there was the physical evidence. That it seems to me the main component of of the trial consisted of Martel's testimony where he had done something very, very, very similar. Cornoyer, 37, was abducted from the parking lot of her workplace in Laval and was killed by LaRouche after he sexually assaulted her in a motel room. Her body was discovered in Montreal seven days later, uh, several days later, after LaRouche was convicted by jury on June 
23, 2011, of Killing Cornoyer, a police source revealed to the Gazette that Montreal police also considered him as a suspect in three other homicides, including an escort who was killed in Laval on August 10, 2009. So now we get to the part where um, we we can clearly see that LaRouche was an equal uh, opportunity of offender. My, um, my, my colleague uh, referred to LaRouche as a wise reptile. Um, LaRouche said his 2005 conviction involving the attempted abduction of a nine-year-old girl in Montreal involved in an incident where he had consumed alcohol all day and confused the victim with a daughter he hadn't seen in years. (laughs) The girl managed to fight her way free from LaRouche's car and asked a nearby resident for help. In an attempt to explain away Cornoyer's murder, LaRouche supplied Morissette with the same version of events that the jury in his trial simply did not believe. LaRouche claimed he went to a motel room in Laval to consume a large amount of cocaine and crack while watching pornographic films. He said that the cocaine did not provide the type of high he was used to, and he called a drug dealer to purchase more. LaRouche claimed to Morissette, and during his trial, that he and the drug dealer made an arrangement to meet on a bike path near the parking lot where Cornoyer worked. He said she confronted him when she spotted him using cocaine in his van and they got into an argument. Despite the argument, LaRouche claimed Cornoyer agreed to go with LaRouche to his motel room where he killed her by accident but couldn't remember how because he was so high. And so the, the final thing with, with LaRouche is what by now you would have guessed. Um, LaRouche was living in the neighborhood uh, blocks uh, from where uh, where Mariev disappeared. Um, we know he was there um, certainly in 1995 and suspected he was living there in 1992 as well. And certainly... Um, an offender who's in and out of criminal justice, um, if he's transitioning, could have could have been seeing visiting parole officers in the area who very likely would have been housed in facilities and buildings in the area as as it's described. This this neighborhood is you would have all of that stuff. You'd have transition houses, you'd you'd have parole officers corrections administrations all within the vicinity of the St. Vincent de Paul penitentiary. And I, and I said, um, if you kind of go, well, uh, well, that's it. LaRouche did it. Well, you know, he, as I say, he, he, he stands in for about two or three other similar offenders. I'm not going to get into, to all of their, their histories, but above one of whom, um, Richard Bouillon also lived in the area. Um, some people, we haven't got to this case, but Bouillon, who is now um, deceased, uh, claimed to have, a nurse claimed that on his deathbed, Bouillon um, confessed to the abduction and murder of Julie Seprenau, um, who, who disappeared in the same era um, and whose remains have never been recovered we will get to that case, but that—I mean—that's just to say that well, it could have been Bouillon as well, you know, and others. Uh, <clears throat> um, could fifty-three-year-old uh, 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 Claude Rouche be responsible for the cases in the seventies? Um, see, I, I don't think so. He's born in—I uh, think—I think he would have been like eighteen, nineteen. For the seventy-seven cases, um, a, a little um, well, we don't really know, but it seems a little young in my in, in my opinion. It's harder to say that of 
of him. It's not so hard to say it about a um, a, a Luke Gregoire because there's so much compelling evidence to suggest Gregoire, despite the fact that he appeared to be a really young offender. Um, in the case of LaRouche, I, I guess I would say seems a little young. Need to, we would need to know uh, a whole lot more information before coming to that uh, conclusion. One final thought. Uh, there, there's a theory out there that um, uh, Mariev's uh, murder is tied to a series of child abductions that occurred in Montreal in the in the 80s, of uh, particularly of, of young boys who were abducted and murdered, and tying in also the case of Tammy Leakey from 1981. Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to go into that, with the exception to say that um, I don't be- I don't believe it. Um, I don't think there's any evidence t- to suggest a connection with those three disparate elements, as I would call it. I would say that later the police appeared to endorse this theory, um, but if you want me to to get into my reasons why I'm. Um, just you can you can contact me and uh, by now you know where to contact me but uh, you can contact me through the website uh, teresalore.com and as always I'll put up some visual materials there related to um, this uh, episode this case and you can also reach out to me on social media the, the Facebook page uh, who killed Teresa the podcast or the two uh, Twitter handles. Personally, I'm at J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-I, Justice Guy. And then for the podcast itself, it's at Teresa Allure. So that's it for this uh, session, the case of uh, Marie-Ève uh, uh, La Um fifth of eight cases uh, we'll come back uh, shortly with the remaining cases of uh, Melanie Cabet Marie Chantal Desjardins and uh, Jolie Campo this has been Who Killed Teresa I'm your host John Allure have yourselves a great great day
With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox fabric sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our fabric sanitizer products. Search fabric sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed.